Hello, welcome to another episode of the Project Purple Podcast. I'm Dino Varelli, founder and CEO of Project Purple, and we have another interview for you coming up with a very special guest after a few quick updates. 2022 was a record year, and we just want to thank everyone who made it so special from all of our participants, our donors and supporters. You guys allowed us to do so many amazing things in 2022, and we hope to continue that in 2023. With that, we are currently recruiting for many of our, believe it or not, our fall races. It's crazy. Um, We've got open spots in our Chicago Marathon, our Chicago Half Marathons, both in the spring and in the fall, as well as our New York City Marathon team that just kicked off. Spots are going quick, so I'm not sure if you'll be able to grab one. You might be able to get on a waiting list there for New York, but we also have spots for our Berlin Marathon team, as well as many other great races, uh, Twin Cities, Grandmas, just to name a few. If you're interested in learning more, please check out our website. Locally here in Connecticut, we have our golf outing coming up on June 5th. If you're a golfer, love to have you come golf with us at wonderful Shorehaven Country Club. If you own a business and want to get involved, we have plenty of sponsorship opportunities still available. Uh, To learn more about our golf outing and all of our runs, check us out on our website at projectpurple.org. And also to stay in touch with all things Project Purple, make sure to follow us wherever you are on social media. Without any further ado, let's meet our special guest today, somewhat local, uh, just not not too far from the home office here in Seymour, Connecticut, coming to us from Yale, New Haven, Dr. Michael Cicchini, the Assistant Professor of Medicine, Medical Oncology, Co-Director of the Colorectal Program in the Center of the Gastrointestinal Cancers. Michael, thank you for joining us here on the Project Purple Podcast. I got that correct. You got that correct. Thank you so much for having me today. Well, no, thank you. I know uh, we reached out to you. I know the team here reached out to you a while back. We were able to get you on the calendar. And uh, I'm excited to have you here because anytime we can bring, you know, the podcast is wild. We've been doing this six years. I don't think I mentioned that in the intro. So this is six years now. I, I don't even know how many, like a couple hundred guests. Uh, we're at like 75,000 plus downloads. Um, and we've got a vast audience. So people from, you know, survivors, uh, all, all sorts of people from all walks of life listen to the podcast. And we've had all sorts of guests. Um, I love having clinicians on because you guys, I always say are kind of on the front lines, you know, we're in this war, um, you know, with, with this disease, pancreatic cancer. And so it's always great when we can bring, you know, the the frontline doctors onto the podcast to talk about, you know, their background, um, why they got into the space, but also like what's happening in the space. And I know you and I were talking earlier, uh, before we hit record, just about some of the work that you do there at Yale. Yale is kind of special to me. I know I didn't mention this to you before, but uh, my dad was treated as Yale at Yale uh, when he was diagnosed. So I always kind of have kind of a a special hold, a special place in my heart uh, to the team there at Yale because they took care of my dad really, really well uh, from top to bottom. So it's a it's a great place. We're really fortunate. I know we were we were kind of getting to know each other before we hit record. You're from the West Coast originally, which I we might get into that here when I hand this off to you for your background, but you know, living here in Connecticut for as long as you have, you know, I like to tell people when I travel a lot, you know, people say, oh, Connecticut. And they go, oh, it's really expensive to live there. And I go, yeah, but we have really good healthcare. You know, we've got access to healthcare. Um, you know, we're, we're, Connecticut's got great healthcare systems and, you know, you can get 
pretty much from one end of the state to the other end of the state within maybe like, okay, two hours if you're doing the speed limit, maybe an hour and a half, right? So, you know, people here in the state of Connecticut have some really great healthcare choices. Um, so, you know, it is an expensive place to live. I think everything's expensive now, so it's kind of irrelevant. <laughs> I think yeah. that ship has sailed a bit. Um, I don't think there's any, uh, unless you're going to like, I, I've seen these people now where they just like go into the woods and they build a house and they're kind of <laughs> off gridding. I guess that's pretty inexpensive to do. But um, without further ado, let's get into your background here. Uh, this is our segment, the first segment of the podcast where we allow our guests to kind of share their background. And as I said before we hit record, um, you can stay as high level as you want, um, or you can you can get into the weeds. And with that, uh, the mic is yours to share your background and what brings you here to the podcast today. Great. Well, again, thank you for having me so much. Uh, so as you pointed out, I grew up on uh, the West Coast in the San Francisco Bay Area. I did my undergrad out there, and I, I moved to the Northeast uh, in 2008 to go to medical school. I went to Albert Einstein College of Medicine in, in New York in the Bronx, and um, I, I finished up medical school after four years in 2012, and that's when I came to Yale, which I'm obviously still at now. Uh, so I came here for my internal medicine residency. I stayed on for my medical oncology and hematology fellowship. I'm double boarded in both. And then I started my faculty appointment in 2018. As you pointed out, I'm an assistant professor of medicine in the division of medical oncology here. Um, and I focus on gastrointestinal cancers. I, I kind of just went seamlessly from internal medicine residency to, to fellowship uh, in oncology. But, you know, I, uh, like many, uh, trainees at the time, I was trying to figure out what was the best path for me. And one of the reasons medical oncology was was what I ultimately went into is I, I spent uh, spent time as part of residency looking, you know, participating in different practices of medicine. And one of them was oncology for obviously and, and other cardiology, pulmonary critical care. They were all fascinating. But in oncology, I saw a specialty that combined the humanism of medicine, you know, this connection with our patients that was so close and, um, and, and developed with fascinating science as well. So it really blended, um, uh, blend those two aspects of, um, of, of medicine and science and research. And I saw a need too. I saw a, a set of diseases that really needed um, a transform, a transformation. You know, we need new treatments. We need new biomarkers. We need new screening strategies. And so I saw this big need in this, this very unique specialty, and that's what really gravitated towards me, to me towards it. Furthermore, you know, it's, it's it always comes down to mentorship. So when you have people you look up to, um, you know, that helps. And people, you know, I work with inspiring people when I was a resident and they, I could see myself doing what they do and really, you know, had aspirations to practice medicine like they did and, and develop research strategies like they did. And so that's what, what led me to um, oncology and specifically I had people in the gastrointestinal space, uh, gastrointestinal cancer space that led me to ultimately focus on that. And that, you know, there's many needs across many types of cancers, but I saw a major need in gastrointestinal cancers. And that is what, um, uh, one of the big drivers that brought me to that space. Yeah, as as you mentioned, I see pancreas cancer, I see stomach cancer, gastric cancer, or esophageal cancer, I see colorectal cancer, I see bile duct cancers, anal cancer, et cetera. 
So I see all the gastrointestinal cancers. I, I co-direct our colorectal cancer program, so that does make a, a, a big part of my practice, but I do see plenty of patients with pancreas cancer um, pretty much every week as well. Um, and when you add up all those gastrointestinal cancers, it's actually about 24% of all cancers. Um, so it's, it's this, this, uh, group of cancers that's actually, uh, unfortunately far too common. And also in, in many respects, many of these, these cancer types have not had the same, um, development of, of strategies, uh, of treatment strategies that we've had in other cancers. And, you know, there's certainly plenty of wins we've had as well, but there's a long way to go. Do you think, well, my question then is why, why do you think that is in your professional opinion? Like why are GI cancers struggling a bit? Um, do we, is it like diagnostic? I mean, let's, let's put this out there. It's money, right? Like there's, there's always the, the root cause maybe is some of this stuff is, is like, you know, funding, like there's not enough research, yeah. there's not enough awareness, but do we think though there's other factors that come into that? Why that GI cancers are so complex and like that we there is such a need for that? Yeah, I think there's there's many reasons. Let's just take pancreas cancer as an example. Um, so uh, unfortunately, people with pancreas cancer uh, when they present to the hospital or present to their physician, um, they're often pretty sick because it's not a cancer we diagnose by screening. Sometimes we get lucky and there's a scan that's being done for some other purpose and we catch a cancer pretty early with pancreas cancer. But more often than not, patients are presenting with symptoms and the, the symptoms are because the cancer's already become ad, ad, advanced. And, and so when, when individuals present in, in they're much sicker at, at diagnosis, it can be harder to get treatment going. It can be harder to make clinical trials, for example, an opportunity for them. Um, and it often means the patients are not going to be, for example, a surgical candidate and maybe are going to be treated more in a palliative fashion. Um, pursuant to this, if it's a, it's a cancer where we don't get a lot of biopsies. We don't get a lot of um, tissue. And, and that, that has kind of decades-long problems for how we understand a cancer. So other cancers that are more superficial in the body, for example, or are diagnosed earlier and are surgically excised, there's been decades and decades and decades of experience about looking at having pathologists look at tumors, understand the tumor, what, it, what its visual characteristics are under the microscope, and then kind of sequencing the, the, the tumors, figuring out what the, all the DNA alterations are, figuring out what's going on in the RNA and on a protein level, figuring out all these characteristics about the tumor. Now we're, we're, we do that in pancreas cancer, but but we've had a lot. It's been even just a, a, a disease where the fundamentals has been slower to develop than other cancers because we've been um, because of the lack of, um, of of essentially samples over the years. Now again, we do that, but it's on a smaller scale compared to other cancers. So I think that's affected our foundation to really develop um, research strategies for pancreas cancer. Now again, there's plenty of good science that's gone on in that regard. I just think that other cancers have had different experiences. Um, but then kind of getting back to the, the patients currently, 
again, we're, we're not able to enroll as many patients perhaps in clinical trials from the get-go because patients are, are, are sicker and present with more of an advanced stage. And I think that's really hampered our uh, ability to develop some innovative clinical trials. One of the big other things is immunotherapy. So immunotherapy, drugs that stimulate the immune system to attack and kill the cancer, or another way of putting it, take the brakes off of the immune system um, of an individual so that the immune system will attack and kill the cancer, um, has really revolutionized how some cancers are treated. And a, a classic example would be melanoma, um, a cancer that historically was very resistant to, to any of the treatments we had. I mean, we had some approved treatments, but then within a few years went from being very um, effectively managed with immunotherapy in, in some instances. I mean, it's obviously still a very deadly cancer. Um, but, uh, and, and those drugs have really, for the most part, fallen flat in pancreas cancer. Um, and so they've really energized, and you made a point about uh, the finances, and so they really energized investment, um, clinical, clinical financial investment, but, but labs investing their time and energy and resources into figuring out how can we push these, the boundaries of these treatments, make them available for uh, effective for more people, what, what's the next generation of immunotherapies, and they've really stimulated a lot of, of research and a multitude of cancers that have kind of not worked as well for most GI cancers. Now, there's certainly some like uh, colorectal cancer that's microsatellite instability high, and that was in the, the media um, last summer um, based on the publication out of um, Memorial Sloan Kettering. And so again, there are some instances of these immunotherapies doing you know, a wonderful job for gastrointestinal cancers, but on the whole, um, it, it's not working, and that's a very small group of patients. So I think the lack of immunotherapy effectively working for, mo for many GI cancers is another problem because honestly, I think a lot of drug development, a lot of researchers really do feel that immunotherapy is really one of the major pillars of the future development, uh, future drug development for, for gastrointestinal cancers. And we haven't really figured out how to make it work for the majority of patients with pancreas cancer or, or gastrointestinal cancers. Yeah. It, it's so frustrating, I guess, from a patient advocate, because that's probably the number one thing, like, you know, the CAR T cell, all this, the, the, this immunotherapy stuff. Like we, we get constant calls about like, Hey, I saw this in the news and this immunotherapy and it worked great for this patient. And then, yeah, it doesn't really work well for GI cancers. So I, I I'm going to ask kind of a loaded question here. I have a lot of loaded questions here, but the first one, uh, as we've seen, you know, we know pancreas cancer cases are going up, trending up. Um, you know, colon cancer, again, still going in that direction or flattening out a bit. Um, and we've seen guidance right now. I believe colonoscopy guidance now used to be, was it 50? Now it's like 40, I think for high risk now. 45. It's even 45, 45, right? Just for the general 45, population. Right? Yeah. yeah, general population. But high risk, it's 40, right? I think if you're at a high it, risk. Yeah, it depends on a multitude of factors. It can it can also be if you have a first degree relative with certain conditions, you know, basically the recommendation is to go to 10 years before that person. So if I had a 45-year-old brother that got colorectal cancer, I would be getting screened at 35 or yeah. 50 to 40 or whatever it is. So now, and that's the other piece, we're seeing like these high risk groups, right? We're learning more about these high risk groups in these GI cancers uh, through, you know, BRCA, through screening as, as that has become more and more, uh, I think, uh, across the board. And we've helped support efforts. We have one at Yale uh, with a high risk group for pancreas disease. So as we've seen some of these cancers start to go on this increase, 
we've seen other like lung cancer had a big development a couple years ago, right? I think right before COVID, there was a, a drug that seemed to work really well. Um, you know, you mentioned immunotherapy, and we're starting to see some other cancers go down, but we're seeing GI cancers go up. Do you think, like, will we see kind of like this shift, I guess, towards attention? And 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 where I'm going with this is also we have seen, you know, just in pancreas cancer, we saw Alex Trebek, right? Probably one of the the world's greatest spokesperson for pancreas cancer in the last 10 years uh, for, you know, how many homes and how many lives he touched every night at seven o'clock on Jeopardy, right? We saw in colon cancer, you know, some some really high profile celebrities die of colon cancer at a young age. So do you think like there's maybe a shift here where we will see, you know, further funding because of those awareness events? Or do we still see this kind of, you know, pharma not really investing much because we see that immunotherapy really hasn't had the success in GI cancers. Um, so we're still not going to see, you know, this this deluge of funding um, into GI cancers, but we're seeing the increase, we're seeing awareness, but we're not seeing the funding. I think it, it it's difficult to, uh, to to know how the the timing that the funding comes after the awareness though too. Um, I I do think the awareness, especially for colorectal cancer, for example, um, we probably should have mentioned it's colorectal cancer awareness month right now. Um, yeah, that's um, true. <laughs> um, uh, has has really helped, and it, it is helping investment. But but as you point out. In the United States, drugs are developed by drug companies, and so um, so that is really where a lot of the investment in, in terms of getting therapies to patients. Now, it takes a lot to get to the point where you have a drug, though, too. So these these um, these efforts of raising awareness and raising funding to fund labs to um, do some research that then ultimately leads to drug approval. Sometimes. You know, you're three points removed, and it's hard. It's hard to hard to the link the two. So I, I do think we're making an impact with this improved awareness, um, and um, there's been part of that too has been a, a huge increase in patient advocacy, which I think has really helped the field um, in specific ways. For example, now in our cooperative groups, we have patient advocates that are part of the the development team for clinical trials, um, and um, and part of like clinical trial workshops, um, patient advocates have um, have a voice. And I, I think this just really helps researchers like me, the next generation of researchers as well, um, really remember, you know, they have put the patient first. Like we, you know, we want to 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 make an impact in patients' quality of life, longevity as well, but to put the patients first in every kind of project that we're doing. And and I think that that's been that's been a benefit from from the advocacy group is um, um, awareness and, and advocacy working together as well. Yeah, it, it takes a lot of people to move it right. And I think I've always said uh, I've said this on the podcast: if we can get all the pieces moving together in the same direction, we can make a lot of noise and we can get a lot of traction and we can get results uh, a lot quicker. I feel for for a lot of people, right? Um, my next question, and then we want to talk about clinical trials because I know you do a lot of work in that. But before we get there, this this just came this came up as I was listening to you talk and everything, and and as we talk about this whole 
GI cancer, you know, explosion. And that's probably not a good term, but you know, just an increase in in GI cancers as we see them. Diet. Do you think like I I always look as the human body as the engine, right? Uh, and you know, if you put you know ninety three into your car, if you have a certain car, it's going to run a lot better than if you put eighty seven in it. And I feel like the American diet, you know, whether it's like time, uh, finances now with inflation, certain foods, um, mass processing that we've seen, um, you know, time, convenience. Um, you can go to any corner, Main Street corner in the United States and probably find, you know, one of the the major fast food chains. Not saying it's the most nutritious food. Um, you know, clearly there there's also economics that come into it, you know, and how the foods are processed and how much, you know, profit margin is on the line for a cheeseburger or a chicken. Seems like everyone has a chicken sandwich now. <laughs> uh, you know, so now it's it, it maybe soon that and I didn't realize we had that many chickens in our in our society to to, you know, have a chicken sandwich at every freaking uh, major fast food company now has their own signature chicken sandwich. Maybe the chicken sandwich will replace the hamburger, which would be kind of crazy as an American icon. You always think of hamburgers and cheeseburgers, but um, what do you think? Of, what are your thoughts on diet? Because I, I, we've had some people on. We just recently had someone on from uh, from Fife Therapeutics, which is a uh, a company that's looking at diet as a clinical trial. They're in a phase one trial and sequencing the patient's tumor and then designing a diet that in preclinical data shows that certain treatments or, or certain foods um, allow standard line therapies to actually work better. Um, and also they've seen kind of tumor regression um, because the standard line therapy is actually doing its job and working much more effectively with certain diets and certain foods tailored again towards the tumor. So what are your thoughts on diet? And as we've seen, like just as GI cancers as a whole? Yeah, no, great question. And a question that comes up commonly in, in clinic um, or in other forums as well. Um, and it's incredibly complex. And we have only a fraction probably of the answers here. But uh, so as you kind of began to, to point out there, there's a rising incidence of, uh, of many cancers. And here's, here's one example to tie it back to colon cancer, since we've talked about colorectal cancer awareness, there's a rise in incidence of colorectal cancer in young adults in, in the United States right now. So adults, um, uh, largely defined as adults less than the age of 50. That was, that was the reason that the colonoscopies were moved up to 45 for all adults. Um, and why would that be? We screen people above the age of 50. We weren't screening people less than the age of 50, but that wouldn't lead to a rising incidence, not screening a population. So something diet and lifestyle going on it, it is leading to a, a rise in colorectal cancer um, and, and probably a rise in pancreas cancer, as you pointed out, that's overall is, is rising. But but what specifically about our, our diet? Is it, the, is it the high fat intake and the decreased physical activity so that we have more um, high body mass intake, uh, excuse me, high body mass for um, uh, index for for individuals. That's I'm sure part of it. Um, is it the specific? Um, uh, is it the specific uh, complex car carbohydrates? Like what what specifically in the diet might be doing it? 
um, or is it just the, the weight gain that the diet creates? We, we, we don't really know that, I, I think, but there is some link to the sedentary lifestyle, to the weight gain in driving some of these cancers. Um, um, maybe diet, there's some, some difficulty in really kind of linking the two. Is it diabetes? Does diabetes really increase the risk of pancreas cancer, or are you just more likely to see diabetes because it's the pancreas that's affected with pancreas cancer? Not 100% certain on that, actually, believe it or not. But, um, but clearly, there, there are metabolic phenomena that can drive the, the, the in, increase the incidence of some of these cancers. Um, there, but I, I like the uh, example that you gave with the clinical trial there because I, it, it, this is, is again, this is probably like 50 points removed about how complex it is from what you take in to what's actually going on in a tumor or a cell that becomes tumor, uh, a, a tumor ultimately. Um, you know, we study these things outside the body um, in vitro, as we as we define it. So, in the, you know, working on cells in a, a dish or a tube or a um, whatever. And are we really recapitulating, recreating what's going on in a tumor? The answer clearly no. And so we we make these like really interesting observations, and then we try and test them out in in an animal model, or maybe then if we're showing some success, then in the clinic in some, some, um, so through some avenue uh, in a clinical trial in this circumstance. And sometimes we just don't see at all what we saw in the test tube because, you know, what the metabolism of what's going on in, in a cell outside the body is so different than the potassium, the, the phosphorus that's flowing back and forth in the actual body, that the oxygen environment, the blood the, the interstitial pressure, the pressure around the cells is like completely different in the body. And so uh, these things, when we make an interesting observation, really need to be tested like you were describing. It sounds like this, this I, I'm not so familiar with this specific um, uh, trial, but, but they sound like, look, they have a hypothesis and they're really going to test it before um, before deciding on what the next steps should be. So it's, I think, unfortunately, it's where we're, we don't have great answers for how to give true insightful guidance for, for what people should do um, to change their diet, um, uh, to prevent cancer or change their diet once they've get, gotten developed cancer. Um, I think there are some of the obvious things that you kind of, and I have been uh, talking about that, look, if you eat, uh, fresher fruits and vegetables and less often processed foods, it doesn't lead to weight gain. That's that's going to be a win on, on multiple fronts, cardiovascular disease, of course, is t as well. So those types of things are, are certainly probably pretty helpful. But after cancer has developed, how, how big of an impact does it uh, does it uh, make to, to change your diet in that regard? Uh, there, another A common thing people do is try and remove sugar completely from their diet. And that can that can be problematic for people that then start having a low caloric intake and are losing weight specifically because of that diet, that, that dietary change. And then maybe they don't tolerate their treatments as well. Um, so I, I have, I struggle a little bit with the recommendation of changing diets dramatically once cancers develop, because I've seen some actual harm come to people from doing that. Um, but as long as you're keeping your caloric intake stable and, and substituting with fresher fruits and vegetables, et cetera, meats, fish, whatever, um, that's completely normal and acceptable rather. Yeah. I, I think it's a, it, it's such a, it's a hard one. Right. And, 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 and I, as I said, it was a loaded question. I think, you know, to your point, like we don't want to advocate, like if someone's battling cancer, you just, you need calories, right? So you need stuff. And, and unfortunately, and I, I saw this firsthand with my dad, I see it with patients, like 
I have one patient right now, like all he can eat because of the, the treatments, he loves pizza. Like it's not the most nutritious thing, but he's, he can eat a whole pizza, you know, but if he, you know, put a piece of chicken or, you know, has, a, he, he'll eat a little bit of protein or, you know, steak, but like just loves the, loves the taste of pizza, his taste buds right now. So, you know, he's getting pizza, you know, five days a week because you're trying to keep up with that calorie count. Um, you don't want to be in a calorie deficit, especially, you know, battling uh, cancers and doing treatments because you, you want to get those calories into you so that you can be strong enough to, to fight. Right. Yep. So it's, it's really becomes a balancing act. And I think the other piece of this, you know, is, is clearly economics, right? Like not everyone can afford, you know, a nutritionist or to get, you know, uh, high end, high quality, you know, organic chicken beef, whatever, you know, and, and again, it comes down to calories and, you know, I've heard stories, you know, again, the people just can't tolerate, you know, certain foods, they'll just eat, you know, foods that they can tolerate. And that's the nutrition they're getting. And, you know, that that's what they need. They need the calories uh, in order to sustain the treatments. So it's, it, it's, it's definitely a balancing act or I don't think there's either, uh, you know, there's not an answer to it. It's, it's a really complex thing, um, you know, but it's interesting how, you know, diet, um, to your point, you know, where we see, you know, people in a sedentary lifestyle and eating some not so healthy foods and how that correlates to, you know, disease progression, um, you know, in some of these GI cancers is really scary. Yeah. And, and just another point on, on that, that you were making it, disparities in, in the finances around this are, are a big problem. Um, you know, there are some places where it's really difficult to get access to certain foods. Um, and some people don't have the financial means to get access to certain foods. And so um, that is the, the really the caloric intake that's, that's feasible. And uh, that's, that's a problem. Huge, huge. All right, let's talk about clinical trials. Uh, this is a topic I know before we hit record, I, I, I love bringing awareness through this podcast. And I, and I feel this is kind of a unique opportunity because you have done a lot of work with clinical trials. Um, you've also recently been appointed uh, to the colon task force uh, of the NCI gastrointestinal cancer screening committee. Just started that. Um, and that is uh, that term just started. And I'm just going to read this here because I think this is important as we get into this to, to share some of the background on this is uh, be a part of the committee addressing the design prioritization and evaluation of concepts for phase two and phase three clinical trials in adult gastrointestinal cancers with the goal of improving outcomes. So before we get into kind of some things for our audience listening, what is a, how do you define a clinical trial? When you have a patient come to you and you say, Hey, I've got this clinical trial. What is it? Yeah. What, how do sure. you define clinical trials? Sure. Because I think that that's a big key here because I think there's a, as we said before we hit record, there's kind of a lot of confusion, I think in, in all cancers and, and not just pancreas cancer, but just all cancers as a whole of what is a clinical trial? Sure. Absolutely. So there's, there is two different types of clinical trials. Well, I mean, there's multiple different subtypes of clinical trials, but there's observational clinical trials and there's interventional clinical trials as well. And observational clinical, clinical trials aren't really something I participate uh, as much in. Um, interventional clinical trials, meaning we're trying to do something, we're trying to give something, um, measure something um, to, uh, to change somebody's um, outcome. 
is is the bulk of what we do in oncology for medical oncologists like myself doing oncology. Um, so there are three main phases of clinical trials. Um, people, many people are familiar with hearing things like phase one, phase two, and phase three clinical trials. And and if we would just work ourselves backwards, so I, I by the way will participate in all phases of clinical trial in, in my role here at Yale um, and in the, in the NCI steering committee that you pointed out is more, more later phase trials. Um, my big interest is on drug development. So I tend to be more focused on the phase one, phase two kind of clinical trial, specifically for GI cancers. But when I am doing that focus and there's something that carries me into the phase three space, I kind of stick with it. So. So what's a phase three clinical trial? That's that's a later stage clinical trial for a, a treatment that is potentially going to be approved soon should, should that trial be um, uh, successful. So usually um, a phase three trial is what we call a registrational trial. And if it shows some benchmark that's, that we define as success, um, and we all agree that that benchmark is success, um, then the dr a drug might be approved. Usually success is the the, um, defined as prolongation of survival um, without the significant detriment of quality of life. Um, so a phase three trial is comparing two treatments, um, comparing treatment A, some new treatment with treatment B, the standard of care. In some instances, that may be for patients that have received several prior chemotherapies, several prior treatments, and that standard of care might be doing observation or a placebo. And so you might be testing a new treatment against that. However, in other circumstances, we're testing a new treatment as our initial treatment. So maybe we're trying to beat out the treatment that we have right now and show, look, this new treatment we have is really better than the, what we do for the majority of patients as our current day standard of care. But the point is it's, a, it's treatment A versus treatment B. And you're trying to say, hey, is one of these better than the other? And so you're, as a patient, you may be not getting this newer treatment. You might be getting what the standard of care would be. Ethically, nobody should be getting anything that is uh, not... That, that is inferior to what our current day regimens, current day standards are, because at worst, you should be getting the normal treatment. At best, perhaps you're getting this new um, option. Um, so that's a phase three clinical trial. And again, usually if you show, uh, usually if it's shown that it, there's a benefit in what you're doing, um, the FDA will review that and, and, and potentially approve that treatment. A phase two clinical trial is where you treat everybody the same. For the most part, and by the way, there are there are nuances and exceptions to these rules. But for the most part, a phase two clinical trial is you treat everybody the same. Maybe it's fifty patients, maybe it's hundred patients, thirty patients, somewhere in in that realm. And by the way, a phase three clinical trial is many hundreds of patients typically in both treatments. But a phase two clinical trial, you're treating everybody in a very uniform fashion, um, and trying to say, well, if on average I expect a treatment to work for um, a, a year for um, this group of patients, and I'm trying this new treatment and it worked for two years for everybody, I think we're onto something here. And this should then continue its development probably in a phase three clinical trial where we actually then start to randomize people and say, hey, are we actually doing better or do we just have an observation with, uh, uh, in a single uh, patient population? In a phase one clinical trial, um, it's different what we're looking at often we're often looking at the drug's properties. So we're trying, we, our, our drugs are designed to, uh, to treat cancer and often designed to, speed, to treat a specific cancer or a specific subtype of cancer. But, but the reason a phase one trial is being done is to understand the properties of the drugs and the safety of the drugs and potential side effects of the drugs. We hope that they'll also 
benefit our patients and work against the cancer. But the, the chief reason, the primary question a phase one trial is trying to answer is, what's going on with the drug? What are the properties of the drug? How, how are people's bodies processing the drug? Because we need to know that to develop, to develop that phase two trial, to develop that phase three trial, et cetera. So all drugs have to go through this phase one process. And some patients can divide, uh, derive tremendous benefit from a phase one trial. Um, and some patients, unfortunately, don't. don't. Um, but the point being, these drugs are earlier on in their development. All drugs start there, but these drugs are earlier on in the development. So all drugs do not progress from phase one to phase two. They could end up being too toxic. They could um, uh, end up not having the proper profile kinetics of how the bodies are processing them so that we can not really feel like they have a, a, a great, um, um, a, a, they are ultimately going to be a great option. And maybe we need to go back to the drawing board and figure out how to attack that target from a different mechanism or with a different drug that's a little bit more favorable in its profile. Um, and, uh, it used to be that phase one clinical trials were really just the first time, the very first time a drug was entering the clinic. And that's still kind of the central dogma of a phase one clinical trial. But sometimes now we're just combining two FDA approved drugs and we're, com we're combining that into a phase one and, and it, that's in a phase one trial, but really those drugs are very well as single agent, pretty well studied. And so it's not really the first time they're, they're entering the clinic by themselves. Also, the lines between a phase one and a phase two trial have become very blurred. It used to be you ran your phase one trial, took a year or two, you closed it down, and then you analyzed the data, and then it, the decision was made, okay, let's do the phase two trial. And that takes a lot of time. There's a lot of red tape, a lot of bureaucracy. And in an effort to make drugs available to patients faster, sometimes phase two trials have really been combined into phase one trials. So instead, a phase one trial stays open longer, and 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 really you you get get uh, phase one and phase two done in the same trial. Where again, you look at the drug properties, the safety profile, and then you start to look at effectiveness, which is the phase two question in the same exact trial. And and so again, I I tend to participate a lot in those kind of phase one to phase two type of trials. Um, specifically for gastrointestinal cancers. That was a lot. Uh, but I, I got some questions here. So the, the obvious one here that I have, so someone can be, so if I heard you correct, like we could have a phase one trial and we can see people have positive responses, which would lead to prolonged life. So... There, the the myth, uh, dispelling a myth here, that people sometimes say, well, if it's not a phase three trial, there's no positive outcome out of it, which is completely wrong because you, we could see someone have a, a tremendous positive result in a phase one trial, which then would bring us hopefully, well, if enough people have it, then we go to phase two. And then again, if enough people have it, then we go to phase three to do a, a placebo and, and to have one audience you know, on the full drug, the other audience on similar, but not getting the full drug to really test that out. And like you said, hundreds of people possibly uh, in that phase three, but there could be positive outcomes out of phase one. There should, well, if it's going to phase two, there's positive outcomes out of phase one. Yeah, that's correct. Yeah. So it, and it, our, our, the drug development platforms have become a lot more rationalized in how we develop drugs. It used to be something kind of was going on in the lab and or maybe there was something developed from um, the um, a sea cucumber, for example, uh, you know, some compound was isolated. And we just realized, hey, look, it, it kills cancer cells. 
um, let's let's figure out how to formulate that into a drug and and make it available into a clinical trial. Now we start, we say, okay, well, gastric cancer expresses something called Claudin 18.2. So how can we develop a drug that might, might target that? And so it's, again, a lot more rational in how we develop it. So that's why I think we do see more benefit now potentially in our phase one trials than we used to see in the past because there's a lot more thought into who should be on that phase one trial and, and why that drug is, is being made available for gastric cancer as opposed to breast cancer and why there's a different drug for pancreas cancer than, than colon and, and so on and so on. So because of that, yes, certainly, and even, even before that, you can still develop derive benefit from a phase one trial. But also I think, again, in the modern day phase one trials, there's certainly a lot more scientific rationale um, uh, for why we're doing what we're doing. Uh, and so that's kind of a conversation I have with my patients. But but we do have to be very upfront, honest, not sugarcoat thing with our things with our patients. That there isn't the clinical evidence in the phase one trials to say, look, okay, we you know we've tested this out. It's working half the time in in patients. That that kind of information doesn't exist, and it does exist in a phase two or a phase three clinical trial Correct. where there's usually some information I can counsel my patients and say, well, look, this was studied, and this is what it showed in the tr the previous trial. And this is why it's being investigated further. And maybe some patients um, think that's good enough evidence for them to pursue a phase two or phase three clinical trial, and others don't feel that that's right for them. But that that evidence doesn't exist in the phase one. But there are still plenty of patients that benefit from phase one clinical trials. Yeah, and I think that's an important piece that you just said. And, and I think that's, again, the myth, like, hey, it's phase one, like, well, what's the benefit, right? Um, where, where some people may experience uh, benefit. Question for you that just popped up as you were saying, you know, as as these things become, and I don't want to put words in your mouth, but like almost more targeted or personalized as we've kind of gone down this. So, I guess that's one question. So, the, the clinical trial, it's particularly in GI cancers, have they become more targeted then versus like so it's not like the shotgun approach, like hey, we've got this drug and it kills everything let's try this out or let's like we've identified this protein or we've identified this this marker that we know feeds the cancer that we can attach you know this drug to that will kill the cancer so has it become like in the last like 5 years just more of this targeted approach with clinical trials absolutely absolutely so you know like i was saying earlier one i think that the future pillars of drug development is immunotherapy. One of the other pillars is precision medicine and targeted therapies. And, and really a kind of a phrase we like to use is choosing the right drug for the right patient at the right time. Um, and so, so a, a lot of that involves doing sequencing on the tumors. Then there's also kind of staining the tumors and looking at them for expression of certain proteins. But, but the um, one example is sequencing a tumor and finding out that there's something like a BRCA mutation. You brought that up earlier and knowing, hey, in BRCA mut mutations, in tumors of BRCA mutation, certain drugs work better than others, or certain drugs in development uh, make more sense than others as well. And so that really helps me have that information for somebody when I'm evaluating them for a clinical trial. There are, however, there are plenty of examples where you know that sequencing is done, and and there's nothing that's really changing how I think about that cancer um, from a molecular standpoint to say, okay, these drugs make more sense than those drugs. 
there are some cancers, again, just like there have been some cancers that our immunotherapy has worked better. There are some cancers where precision medicine has been a lot more successful. We're really carved up the disease into different subset, sub, subtypes of the disease to understand, okay, we don't just think about this as lung cancer. We think about this as EGFR mutated lung cancer. And mm-hmm. so this group of patients do better with that treatment. And that. And so we've been successful with a cancer like colon cancer. I'm not as successful as lung cancer, but successful with a cancer like colon cancer of, of carving the disease up into certain subgroups and knowing how to treat those patients a bit differently. Um, but there are still uh, a lot of patients, even in, in, in colon cancer, that don't fit fit into a specific targeted therapy. And then a, a kind of a, a contrast example would be pancreas cancer, where there's there aren't there isn't much in the way of molecular subsets of the cancer. Most patients with pancreas cancer have the same four recurring recurring mutations of KRAS, MAD4, CDK, N2A, and TP53. We don't really have targets for any of those cancers. I mean, that's a little bit of an oversimplification. We have a we have these brand new drugs called KRAS G12C inhibitors, but that subtype of mutation is really just one maybe 2% of, of pancreas cancer patients um, with that subset of KRAS mutations. So for most patients, there isn't something that changes the management too dramatically with pancreas cancer. However, going back to BRCA, there are about maybe 4% of patients with, BRCA, uh, with pancreas cancer that BRCA, and there, there are different strategies for those patients. So uh, it is a ma- it's a very important point, precision medicine, um, it, uh, something that I think needs to be made available for all patients. That means generally sequencing the tumors um, to know whether or not there could be something um, available. Yeah, I, I, you know, I think as we have embraced technology, um, you know, there's great things that are happening. And I think that's one thing I, that I've seen personally, just with, you know, genomics, you know, and, 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 you know, just really understanding, um, you know, if there's a BRCA mutation or, you know, sequencing tumors, my question as well on this point, um, so we are dialing these these clinical trials in, but do you find that to be a little bit of an issue, whether it's getting enough people that have that dialed in issue, um, or on the flip side, like I know just last week I was trying to help someone with this KRAS, there's this big KRAS uh, clinical trial that was pretty open wide. I think it was a uh, phase one trial, um, but it was for all solid tumors. It just wasn't pancreatic cancer, but it was this KRAS um, mutation and you had to have the specific uh, protein. I forget. I think you mentioned it, G- G12. G12C maybe? probably. Yeah. There's also yeah. some G12D inhibitors, which- Correct. Uh, but the G12C1 was told like it's like over there, there's too many people they have to they have enough people enrolled and like the waiting list at at Memorial Sloan Kittering I heard is like 50 people deep you know so how do you get moved up you know patients are like well how do I get how do I get into another center and I'm like they're all full so do you think then two part question here do you think that maybe trials have become too specific, so we're not getting enrollment or too generic, like with that, where we're seeing waiting lists or, you know, I, I don't know what the answer is. Yeah. Well, I don't necessarily pretend to know what the answer is either, but I'll, <laughs> I'll do my best to answer your question. <laughs> so, um, you know, precision medicine is is still key, It's but it's incredibly frustrating when you have somebody that has a biomarker and for whatever logistical purposes you cannot you know, you've, you've been seeing the drug work for this narrow subset of patients, but you, for logistical reasons, can't get the drug to the patients. Be it, there's not enough spots on the study. Sometimes studies 
go on hold while they analyze data and decide what the next steps are. Um, and so um, if there were better coordination, I think nationally, or we had better databases, we have clinicaltrials.gov, it's not great, PanCan right, has a database, yeah. I think it helps, but things change so rapidly that the databases we have can't really keep up and, and give a true representation about whether or not there's a spot ready to go for an individual on that on that study. So, uh, you know, precision medicine is here to stay and it absolutely should be. I do think our clinical trials kind of matching process on a, a national level or even on an institutional level leaves a lot to be desired. Um, I, 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 I don't know, brighter minds and more tech savvy and programming minds, I, I think are going to be needed to crack that, that problem. Um, I will say that it's, it helps to sometimes get an opinion elsewhere um, um, yeah, at multiple centers. Um, I think sometimes too many cooks in the kitchen can, can also be problematic, but, but um, I think people get more buy-in uh, if they are, are actually seen as a patient somewhere. Um, to see what's a, truly available for a, uh, for a clinical trial for them. Um, if you have somebody, if, if it was actually a G12C, um, we, we certainly have um, several G12C inhibitor trials open. So um, uh, happy to happy to help if that, if that be needed. Yeah. I, I, you know, you mentioned, you know, um, you know, the website. So going out to clinicaltrials.gov is not is not a fun, fun place to visit, right? And I think PanCan does a great job, right? Like they have their eight hundred number; they're very involved in in the, all the clinical trial work. So, I, I, on that, how do, um, in your experience, how do patients learn about clinical trials? Because, uh, as I mentioned, like I was just trying to help navigate for this one family, and what I ended up doing was just emailing a clinician that I knew knew the answers, and you know, but that's me. I know how to get you know the answers. Yeah. Not everyone has those resources, right? So, what's maybe some of the places or, or some of the things, um, you know, from a from a clinician standpoint here, like what should families and and patients, you know, how do they get involved in clinical trials, or maybe what are the questions they should be asked? Should they be asking these questions like right on their first consultation, or when do they ask? I guess so. Two parts here. I'll summarize. Where do they go, and when do they ask? Yeah, well, where do they go? I, I think the the first place you got to go is to the, the treating physician is to to ask to ask them, and I guess kind of answer them at the same time. I think asking about clinical trials from day one is is very reasonable. Um, request. Uh, it may it may not even be for the clinical trial for for day one, but it it just may help with further di the discussion about why that is and about what your doctor is thinking about for a clinical trial later down later on down the road or why they you know why they think it's not a good idea right now. Um, again, a clinical trial's initial therapy would usually be when it's added on to something that we know already works uh, to some degree anyway. Um, but I, I think somebody's treating physician is going to be the initial, uh, the initial point of contact. That said, there, the U.S. is a large uh, country with um, pretty different geography, and I think we all have different access. Well, depending on where you live, you have different access to healthcare. As we started out talking this segment, in this segment, um, and it, it, here in the Northeast, there's a lot of major cancer centers, and I think you can pretty it's it's not easy for everybody still, despite that. But but at least uh, distance wise, people are a lot closer to a major center where they can go and they can hear really about what what what's available between uh, the the centers in the Northeast. I think most clinical trials that are out there are going to be available somewhere. 
Um, so, uh, you know, some of these oncologists can reach out to place to some of these major NCI designated or, or undesignated cancer centers and see uh, if they've heard of anything for this rare mutation that somebody has or even not rare mutation. Um, but then I, I do think it makes sense to get a second opinion at some point. And the second opinion could be a, you know, a one-time visit for somebody that is getting everything that should be appropriately done closer to home and more efficiently and, and more time with their loved ones nearby and everything rather than traveling vast distances for, for their care. But a, but a second opinion really does help um, get a comprehensive view of their care, make sure that, you know, no stone is left unturned in, in terms of a clinical trial option. For example, you know, I have clinical trials that have targets that nobody would, nobody would know about uh, that's, that's treating patients um, uh, in, in a standard of care fashion, and nor should, they, nor should they necessarily know about them. There's too much, to, I think, to keep tabs on. But if I were to see that patient and I were to see that they had this kind of unusual marker, I might say, look, you're on the right track right now. But at the time that you need something different, I should have something available for you. And I think so. I think that's that's how I can add value in a second opinion. People in New York can do that. People in Boston can do that as well. Yeah, and you just gave away some some powerful nuggets there. I, I think the one thing you know that I the you know NCI designated centers, and I I think the one thing I've seen in thirteen years is a lot of the regional oncologists that maybe not may not be affiliated with an NCI center or be involved in clinical trials are willing to to work with you know an oncologist from afar that's you know heavily involved in clinical trial work or at an NCI center where you have a lot of research happening I always tend to advocate to patients and their families to go to a, a high volume center where they are doing a lot of research and where there are clinical trials available, where you can get a, a set of eyes that this is all they do. It's not a generalist. And I'm not trying to badmouth any oncologist out there in the United States that's a generalist. I, I just think it's in particular with pancreatic cancer, as you mentioned, you know, with this personalization of treatment care um, and how we're treating these cancers, I, you know, you want to see a specialist. You don't want to see a generalist, especially with pancreatic cancer. Um, but I do feel that, uh, uh, you know, especially over the last five years, I, I feel like we've had a lot of families uh, reach out to us that have, you know, come from rural areas. Um, again, not saying anything bad about that rural oncologist, but they have gone and, and the rural oncologists has worked with the specialists at a, a major NCI designated cancer center, um, whatever is closer to them or wherever they can get access to. So, um, you know, it's, it's so important. And I think the other thing too, you know, economics, um, for those listening that that do deal with that, you know, there are a lot of groups, us included, there's there's many groups that provide resources, you know, to get people to those centers, um, to provide lodging and transportation and even support, you know, medical co-pays if, you know, insurance doesn't cover that stuff. So I always try to say that if there's a will, there's a way, you know, uh, but it, it is critical. <coughs> Excuse me. I got two questions here left for you. Of course, they're both loaded, um, and so they're not easy. Uh, uh, the first, the first one is, given your experience, the work you've done in clinical trials, what can we as advocates uh, do better? Like, how do we, how do we, you know, do better in awareness, education? Where do you think we can, we can help? Because everyone plays a part in this, right? Like as I said in, before, like you know, if we're all moving in that same direction. But maybe just from your perspective, from the the advocate side and from families, like what can we do better to kind of move this thing along? Yeah, that's a hard that's a hard question. I I do think the 
like I said, I think the advocacy work has come. I mean, I've only been practicing oncology as an attendee now for five years, but I've been a fellow for three plus years before that. So, uh, but I, I've just, I, there's been an explosion in advocacy work. And I, I think the, the awareness has, has been raised. Um, I think, again, one thing that we talked about a minute ago is how do we, how do we help patients navigate that system? Um, there aren't enough patient advocates for you to do what you did for the, um, that individual that you said where you paired, paired them up. So how do we build a sustainable system where patients can be uh, matched better with, we're talking about clinical trials, so we'll just keep that theme with clinical trials, but, but research, surgeons, whatever it is, how, how, do we, how do we create that infrastructure? I think, again, some of it would, tech will help with some of that. Um, and so how do we engage <laughs> that industry a little bit more to help us develop, develop a little bit more of a sustainable ecosystem for um, getting patients to the care that they need and the care they deserve. Yeah, we're just going to keep pushing uh, and keep raising as much awareness as we can. Uh, and, and doing podcasts like this, I, I think is, you know, not to give us a selfish plug here, but I think is critical, you know, to put these messages out uh, about clinical trials and how important clinical trials are to the whole process. My last question here, before we share with our audience where they can connect with you, um, if they heard something on this podcast that they wanted to reach out, learn more maybe about clinical trials, learn about the work you're doing there at Yale. This is a loaded question. There's no right or wrong. In your experience, your background, how do you define the term pancreatic cancer? What's your definition of it? Pancreatic cancer, uh, a cancer of the epithelial, uh, an epithelial uh, cell that is developed into an adenocarcinoma arising from a a, a pancreas cell. Am I missing awesome. something with the question? No, no, <laughs> you nailed it. You nailed it. That's always our last question um, that we ask all yeah, our no, guests. So it's, um, it's a it's a cancer that is is too common in this 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 country. Unfortunately, about fifty six to fifty eight thousand cases per year. Um, the pancreas is an organ uh, right in the middle of the abdomen that is not not really palpable. Can't really feel it. Um, that there's kind of two main types of cells of the pancreas. One of them are the islet cells that make uh, insulin, and so we often think about it in in uh, in that regard. Um, but there's a, a bunch of other aspects to that organ and um, the uh, uh, some of those cells can unfortunately develop into to cancer um, and um, it's typically called an adenocarcinoma that's how those cells look um, colorectal cancer is primarily an adeno or really an adenocarcinoma as well a lot of the GI cancers are adenocarcinomas which is a common uh, description of the, the type of cell that develops into cancer. Awesome. Michael, thank you for all you're doing for GI cancers as a whole. Um, we need more guys like yourself uh, on the front lines. As I said, it's it's inspiring to have uh, you on the front lines uh, fighting for families, working hard at clinical trials. It's an important piece. I mean, I know we didn't go down this path, but you know, if you really break it down, like clinical trials is how we get curative treatments, you know, we've got to, we've, you know, like there's, I think there, and, and you know, that's, I know I'm dialing it down a bit, but like, if you really think about it, like, regardless of where it comes from, you have to have a, a process of 
discovery of realizing whether or not these treatments work. So clinical trials are the method and the methodology to do that here in the United States across the world. Um, so without that, we don't have better treatments. We don't have more positive outcomes. So thank you for the work you're doing in that and leading that. If our audience wants to connect with you, where's the best place? Maybe they've heard something here or they are local here to the Connecticut area, or maybe New England, and, and they want to learn more about the trial work you're doing in GI cancers. Yeah, absolutely. Um, patients can email me uh, if you were to Google my name. So Michael Cicchini, C-E-C-C-H-I-N-I. Um, so if you're to Google, Google my name, my profile on the Yale website will come up and I'll have my email, but it's pretty simple. It's michael.cicchini at yale.edu. Um, if it's more kind of clinical based and looking to inquire about an appointment, I have um, uh, my main office number would be 203-200-2486. That'd be kind of more inquiring about a, an actual appointment. But I'd be happy to um, uh, help out in any way I could. Awesome. Thank you for being a guest on the Project Purple podcast. Well, thank you again so much for having me. This was really a pleasure. Thank you for listening to another episode of the Project Purple Podcast. If you like what you hear today, feel free to follow us wherever you listen to podcasts and share this episode. Till next time, please be safe. Thanks for listening.